Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday the 8th of June as we record. The sun is shining and we are again happy to be ensconced in the building basement to discuss the latest goings on in UK markets. Uh, I know that sounds a bit like a hostage message, but it is true, I assure you. Today we are discussing electrical components maker Discover IE. We are looking at the prospect of a new normal for interest rates, a big new listing on the London market, and we might also delve into some crypto news if there's time to. Joining me to discuss all this are, as per usual, over the line, Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Oh, good morning, Dan. In the studio, we have our economics writer, Hermione Taylor. Hello, delighted to be here. And our news editor and commodities correspondent, Alex Hamer. Hello. So we'll start with Discover IE. A terrible name, of course, but it is at mm. least memorable, I suppose, sort of. It stands for Discover Innovative Electronics. And in fairness, a fair few people did seem to discover it yesterday when it rallied fairly strongly on the back of its full year figures for the 12 months to the end of March. Mark, you covered those figures. Talk us through them to kick things off. Yeah, sure. Um, this is only the second time that I've uh, had a look at the company and I had quite a, a lengthy chat with management and you were left with the impression that they were very pleased with the results other than the... Uh, the sort of you know the usual expectations there. They finished the period of the the order book was at a higher level level than expected, which was good. There was a an accompanying ten percent increase in organic sales. The uh, the book to bill ratio, which I noted in the piece as well, came in at zero point nine six. Now, under normal circumstances, that, that might be some cause for concern given that. Uh, more units were shipped than billed during the period, but they were coming off an extremely strong comparator as well. So on balance, it was actually a, a pretty good result there. Yeah, so it was it was a, a decent uh, run out from them as well. If you look at their across their different markets, uh, the UK, Europe, and North America all saw double digit sales growth. The outlier was uh, the Asian market, or specifically China, where which saw a fairly uh, heavy dip in uh, organic sales over that period. That was down to supply chain bottlenecks for the most part, and we all know what happened in China towards the uh, the end of last year as well. So that wasn't that much of a surprise, um, all up. The underlying profits there was up by a quarter to fifty-eight, well, fifty-one point eight million. And the related margin was also up too. So from an operational perspective, and in fact, in terms of the financial performance, uh, it's no wonder that, that management were, were quite happy with affairs. Yeah, I suppose the the context for these results as well show the kind of backdrop we are in because, uh, as is common, they had a full year trading update just a couple of months ago, which you know was similarly bullish, saying uh, results are ahead of expectations. And yet the figures yesterday... Wednesday, this is we're strong enough to to spark that new rally. I suppose that shows that you know people are concerned about any signs of a deteriorating outlook, even in the two month or six week period between these two updates. And the fact there weren't any, and the fact that that you know business is still going pretty well, is good enough for another big big markup. I mean, this is really sort of uh, in terms of the structure of the business, it's a supply side story, is the way you characterised it. I think. Yeah, I, I think it, it's got some very 
interesting characteristics to business itself because uh, as I put out, I think it is insulated to a certain degree against wider economic trends. I mean, you can't do that completely, of course, but there's a, an explicit uh, management strategy, which is uh, looking at not only those uh, locales and regions through the world that offer high growth prospects, but also to the product ranges, which are also have growth characteristics. Uh, and given the markets that they, they deal in, um, no, normally consumer electronics, there, there's a high correlation with economic growth as well. But of course, um, Discover IE, they're, they're selling into very specialist uh, uh, niche providers there. For instance, one of their largest uh, customers is the German electronics giant Siemens, and they provide components for, the, um, for that group's MRI scanners. This is an area that isn't normally affected by um, wider economic trends as well, because you just don't, it's not, it's not a disc discretionary sort of budget item, MRI scans, scanners. So, you know, that this is partly explains why they, they hold up pretty well, even if there's general uh, economic anxieties. If you, if you go back to the, uh, if you go back to the last uh, period where we were in uh, a genuine recession in the UK, that was at the um, first couple of quarters of uh, 2020. I mean, we were still in COVID land then, of course, but uh, the, the share price uh, uh, dipped during that period, but responded very quickly as well. So I, I think it does have some some real defensive characteristics, even though you wouldn't think uh, that would normally be the case with a, a supply of electronic components. Yeah, I suppose in 2020, you know, it was quite a, un well, hopefully a unique situation as well in terms of that that big dip and rally, which we saw in a lot of companies, but also in terms of the way that businesses were affected and, you know, each recession is different perhaps. So we'll keep a close eye to see how those effects are are changing. But but the point you make about, you know, being less price sensitive, I think is quite important. And, and to an extent, a lot of their uh, components are relatively small costs proportionally for, for a lot of their customers as well, which, which should you would think enable them to pass on prices a bit more easily than if you're, uh, you know, a big ticket item, that kind of thing. Yes, it, it's a sort of a, it's a capital light business model in, in many respects as well. Another reason why they're insulated against wider trends as well is that they, as, as you, I think, alluded to there, they, they tend to produce a lot of their in-house components too. So they're not actually that vulnerable to uh, the supply chain problems which affected some of their uh, demand in China itself. And uh, when I spoke to management as well, they, they pointed, we, we had a, quite a lengthy discussion about supply chains. And of course, the, um, the realignment of global supply, supply chains was happening well before the pandemic. And management there had anticipated this trend and they've um, rejigged the business model to reflect this as well. So it, it's another real positive, I, I, I think, for the business. I mean, this is a company that goes under the radar a little bit. It is a FTSE 250 company, but but not one that's always you know first on uh, on the agenda. Uh, but again, as mentioned, you know the, the share price has performed pretty well this year. Certainly after the uh, performance yesterday, uh, we've upgraded them to buy as well. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the the valuation case in and of itself? First of all. Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's a little bit difficult when I was looking at this one as well, because it, it is, it's hard. 
because because they supply in very much into sort of niche areas of the technology market it's it's hard to find like with like i i know you uh, uh we referenced some peel hunt um analysis as well and and they look to similar companies such as Halmer and Diploma uh, and said that uh, Discover IE's rating was uh, favorable by comparison. But I uh, earlier on this morning, I, I had a look around at some other companies which uh, bear some comparison, Gooch and Housego and XP Power. And perhaps what I should have mentioned uh, in the value, valuation argument uh, within the article was that they're the, 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 they're cheap relative to their growth prospects. Now, this is borne out by their peg ratio as well. And on that basis, it, it, they really are outstripping um, the, the opposition as uh, too. So, I mean, th th this is the main reason why I decided to upgrade it to a buy as well. It's those growth prospects going forward. We don't think are adequately reflected in uh, in the share price. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... it's it, 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 it's not a tremendous yield on the stock at the moment. I think the, the forward yield is about 1.8%. I might be wrong on that one, but uh, I, I think this is um, a really well-run organisation. It, it has a moat in several of its markets as well. It's not it's not the type of components you, anyone can turn around and uh, and produce overnight. So um, definitely, I think uh, it could be a worthwhile uh, addition to uh, investor portfolios. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Halmer, you know, uh, alluding to Peel Hunt. We were having a chat earlier about the the note they put out. They are a Italy house broker. But, you know, comparing valuations with the likes of Halmer Diploma, I think Discover IE compared with its sector is maybe a little more expensive, uh, certainly on a basic PE basis. But when you look at those kind of companies, it, it's, you know, it's trading at a discount. Part of that is the reason I think Peel Hunt thinks it should be compared to those is it has a similar buy and build strategy you know it does like yeah. to make acquisitions return on capital has been fairly good over the last few years it did dip a bit last year but it has been pretty good which shows that or suggests that those acquisitions have been been you know accretive for the company but what are the when you spoke to management did they make any comments about you know further appetite doing more deals in in the months ahead yeah they're certainly looking at companies at the moment now, of course they can't go into any uh, specific detail when they're talking to me but you sure. uh, certainly given the impression that they're always looking at deals and when you look at the uh, the balance sheet as well it's in it's in good nick you know uh, the sort of net profits are, uh represent 0.7 times uh, cash profit so i mean that gives them plenty of leeway to to look at um to look at acquisitions in the market too i, I would reiterate that point again though you know the rating i mean that is a reflection in many ways of those growth prospects and i think that's the central point that uh, our listeners and readers uh, should take on board yeah i mean it, it was interesting uh, yesterday but i think it started when you uh, you know it was up sort of three four percent at the beginning of the day and for much of the morning and then ended up you know up double digits so clearly there is you know interest there in those figures and We'll be keeping a close eye, as ever, on the company in the uh, months ahead. But we're going to turn to our cover story this week now. Uh, it is on interest rates. It's on, well, first of all, where are they going next? But, but secondly, where might they end up, all else being equal, as a, you know, a kind of a terminal rate, if you will? Uh, Hermione, you wrote this piece. There are many different terms to this, which we can get into. Uh, 
you know, also looking at the, the natural rate of interest, as it's called, quote unquote. Um, we'll, we'll come on to that in a moment. But, but first of all, we should sort of talk about the uh, media uh, outlook in the UK specifically, where, you know, expectations of higher rates are certainly, you know, gathering pace again, or they have been in the last few weeks, given elevated inflation figures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of a sudden, the end of this tightening cycle suddenly seems a lot further away than it did. Um, expectations have softened a bit, but markets are expecting interest rates to rise to almost 5.5%. A lot of econo um, economists think that 5.25% is where they'll settle, where they'll peak. So that potentially means three more interest rate hikes over the summer. I mean, as you say, the reason is that UK inflation hasn't fallen as quickly as we were, as we were expecting. Um, so the expectation now is that the Bank of England is going to have to raise interest rates higher and maybe hold them there for longer to quash inflation and get it back down to target. Um, and it looks like they will be high for a while. So if you look at market pricing, it suggests that interest rates will still be above 3.5% even in five years' time. So I've been looking at this question of when the tightening cycle ends and interest rates do go back to normal, what will normal even look like? Yeah, I mean, that is the big question, isn't it? Because, as you say, there, there have been, there's been this debate about, or certainly at the start of the year, of oh, we're near the peak and you know, might rates even be cut later in this year, given we've we're potentially entering a recession, we still might, of course. That has been pushed back a little bit. But the the ultimate question really then is, given this, you know, decade plus of zero or, you know, at or near the zero lower bound interest rates, very different to what we've seen in the decades before that, what does a normal environment look like if we are hopefully, you know, out of a recession and, you know, perhaps out of an expansionary period as well and, and into a more normal times. I mean, normal times never seem to arrive nowadays, but nonetheless, yeah. what, what is that, you know, kind of median rate? And that's kind of almost in many ways what you're looking at in this piece. Yeah, well, economists think that maybe markets aren't actually right on this. And there are some theoretical reasons to think that interest rates won't actually stay as high as they are now and definitely as high as they have been kind of in, in decades past. And one reason is this um, idea in economics of the natural rate of interest, which is very hypothetical. And it's the rate of interest that would keep an economy in a nice equilibrium of kind of low unemployment and target inflation. So sort of not too hot and not too cold. And if a central bank raises the interest rate above the natural rate, they would slow the economy down. And if a central bank cuts the interest rate below this natural rate, that should start to get the economy going again. And economists think that this natural rate has fallen in developed economies over the past 40 years and that it might fall further still. What are some of the reasons why why they think that has been the case? What are the, the factors driving that fall? Well, the IMF just did a big report on this. Um, and they think that in the UK, this natural rate of interest has fallen from about 2% um, a few decades ago to under 0.5%. They think it could fall even closer to zero. Um, and this is really driven by the impact of an ageing population and they think slower productivity growth. It was quite interesting. I, I was looking at that report as well. And, the, you know, they don't think the likes of, you know, you think the big changes macroeconomically over the past few decades, you know, the the rise of China, they don't think that has affected developed economies natural rate too much just due to offsetting factors. I suppose the, the next question is, what does this natural rate mean and the changes in the natural rate? What do they mean for where UK rates might settle over the medium term? I mean, this is, again, the yeah. possible to answer question, but According to those clues, what I mean, do they suggest? Well, there's there's a phrase in this IMF report that said that they think that the factors that drove the low natural rate haven't gone away and they think that natural rates will stay low. Even though it sounds like it's kind of a slam dunk for returning to near zero rates, there's a really big catch, which is that when they're talking about the natural rate, they're stripping out the impacts of inflation. 
So that means that if um, inflation does go back to target to 2% and our natural rate is about 0.5%, that would mean interest rates of about 2.5%. So in theory, we could expect interest rates to hover about 2.5% in the medium term if this inflation problem is sorted out. But the question is, well, first of all, will the inflation problem be sorted out? I mean, this is a huge question. Um, forecasts suggest that it will, you know, maybe towards the end of next year. But a lot of economists think that even if it does go back down to target, the Bank of England might be quite cautious and they might be slower to cut rates back down to this natural rate because they're worried about inflation coming back up again. So because of that, we could see um, the interest rate staying above this kind of natural rate for a while. Yeah, it's another reason perhaps why, you know, getting back to normal or, or what we deem to be normal might not be happening anytime soon. I mean, what, what are the other things that could impact this natural rate, you know, aside from the question of inflation? Yeah, I mean, you, you've made a great point about the impact of China. And we've had a lot of big structural forces that have driven the natural rate of interest down over the past kind of few decades. Um, and then, I mean, there's no reason to think that there won't be other forces that could actually drive it back up again. So the IMF says that there are a few things to be aware of, which is deglobalization, so kind of global fracturing, um, and move towards green energy and kind of the fact that we've got very high public debt at the moment could actually increase the natural rate of interest again. And even though this natural rate of interest is theoretical, that does still imply that policymakers would need to hold the interest rates they're setting higher to try and keep inflation and employment in equilibrium going forward. Um, so, yeah, lots of uncertainty. Mm. That, that, you know, green economy, decarbonisation is an interesting question as well uh the imf you know says i mean people have different opinions on you know whether the, the transition will raise the cost of capital overall or whether you'll do the opposite i think the imf says higher energy prices i say i think i'm just quoting directly from the report here higher energy prices reflecting a combination of taxes and regulations would bring down the marginal productivity of capital uh but offsetting that is you know the potential need for deficit financing of the likes of you know infrastructure and the subsidies that you know we're starting to see come out as well could act in a, in a different way. So, you know that to me seems like a big uh, potential impact on the natural rate in the years ahead. They, this prospect of transition or governments attempting to transition us to a greener economy. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also worth pointing out that some economists think that the kind of trends that would impact the natural rate of interest could also impact inflation as well. So things like decarbonisation and a move to a green economy could actually change where inflation settles longer term, which would have implications for interest rates as well. That's a fair point, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the inflation question is currently all important <laughs> yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, we'll probably continue that way for, for a while, but, but I think it is valuable to get a sense of of what this means uh, as well and what it could mean you know it's probably we we do touch on in the piece we won't go into it now we do touch on some asset allocation implications as well but, but i think that the general gist of it is very much you know looking at a little bit down the line what kind of scenario might we be facing I think it's fair to say we're probably not going back to 0% interest rates anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, in the piece I look at, it depends the horizon that you look at. I mean, I think a lot of people in their 30s have been used to only near zero interest rates, and that's normal to them. But if you take a longer view, um, interest rates have sort of been much higher. There were 6% when the Bank of England was established back in the 1600s. So if you take a longer view, this idea of what normal is does look very different. Yeah, as I say, that is our cover story this week. So if you have an interest in interest rates, which you should do, uh, as we all do, uh, do take a look at that. Uh, but for our next segment this week, we are going to talk about a London listing, a big uh, potential listing uh, in London. 
WE Soda, WE Soda. How do you, how do you, uh, I don't know how you pronounce this company. It's a new company, a new name to us as well. But Alex, you've, uh, you've been looking at this a fairly big company in terms of market cap. First of all, what does it do? It deals with soda ash. Yeah, so it's WE Soda, right. aka Q Soda, aka a subsidiary of the China Group, um, a Turkish uh, C I N E R. Okay. I've taken the pronunciation from uh, Liverpool, previous Liverpool midfielder Emre Chan. So I hope it's right. It's a Turkish company. Okay. Or conglomerate, as you might say. It owns a few media entities, um, TV channels, uh, and WE Soda, which is actually a UK registered company, hence the London listing. But for all intents and purposes, you're potentially buying into um, part of this bigger conglomerate that mines um, soda ash, as you say, um, which is used in, um, it's one of those kind of precursor almost chemicals. So it's actually, soda ash is sodium carbonate. It's used for glass manufacturing mainly, but then it goes into cleaning products, food products. It's one of those things that's all around us, but we don't really know about. And um, WE Soda is trying to trying to change that. And uh, uh, this is a, a UK listing, which in itself is notable at the moment. Uh, it's a UK incorporated business you mentioned. That's probably one reason. Another reason is it's, you know, emerging markets focus as well. You know, Turkey has its own issues right now with the currency too. So perhaps, you know, London seems attractive for, for a number of reasons. It's an established market. It allows them to still access, you know, any number of their underlying markets as well. And perhaps it's, you know, a bit better in that regard than the US just geographically. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is, it's nice that they're listing in London. Um, just, you know, it's been a bit cowed in recent months um, in terms of the, the public markets, but you can't really see a company like this wanting to go to New York. I mean, Amsterdam or Frankfurt maybe, but, you know, it knows the UK. Its CEO is a former um, investment banker in London. They, they've set up here for a reason. It's an interesting one from the investor standpoint because I think this is a well-established business. It, you know, sales last year were 1.7 billion um, US. It makes a fair amount of free cash. It, it's listing with the idea that it's going to pay out fairly good dividends. Um, the the caveat is that only 10% of the company will be, uh, well, it will only be a float of 10%. Um, they're not raising cash. It's actually just the China group run by... Mr. China himself and his his wife will be the, the chair of this um, or is the chair of this company. Um, but they're just selling off. Um, I think it was seven eight hundred million um worth of of shares. Um, and that's just going to go back into the conglomerate um to pay off intercompany debts. So you're kind of buying into this broader company. It's not like you know, say a traditional um mining float. You know, we've had a few come over. Um, in recent years, something like Endeavor Mining, big gold miner, that it's you're investing 100% in that. Um, there's a big float, liquidity is pretty good. Um, this is a, a quite a different story um, to that. Um, yeah, I, like there aren't many comparators, so it's a bit hard to, to stick a valuation on it. But I think estimates so far are a 7.5 billion market cap, which would take it into the the FTSE 100. Um, um, and with that 10% float, it would meet the minimum um, requirements there. It might go up to a 15% float. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a public-ish company. Um, and I think, you know, 
Uh, a comparison might be Solve, which is a Belgian chemicals company. Um, they have a much broader range of products, but they're another big producer of soda ash. They're valued about eight times forward earnings. Um, but yeah, there's no direct comparison really. There is also a retail offer via primary bid, albeit fairly small. Yeah, I think so. Their their um, retail investors will have, um, and there's eight million euros that they're looking to raise um, through that platform. Um, that will obviously be a, a pretty small proportion of of what they're they're selling. Um, but I think you know there's there 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 are a few regulations they're coming up against here, and that that eight million is is about the cap of where they can go. Um, I don't know. It's kind of throwing a bone to the retail investors who often get get left out of these these processes. Um, and what I'm in, interested to see is actually the the liquidity and actually and trading volumes that that they can manage. Um, we're still a few we're we're still a while away from this actually happening. I mean, last week was the intention to float. This week we got the confirmation of intention to float um, with their list of eight banks who are all I'm sure working very hard. Um, I mean, we we already got a a, a nice um bit of bit of marketing from um, Liberum who's who's on it um, talking about the soda the soda market um, obviously um, you know helpfully for their client the the market is forecast to go into deficit um, you know who would have thought but it's you know it's had about one percent growth a year in in demand um, it's kind of ticking along it's not a very um, liquid market it's it's long-term contracts they're mainly selling to China Um yeah, and it, I mean, WE Soda is one of the big, is the biggest miner. Um, the only context to that is you can also get it from um, from other methods. So there's so it's one of the big it's the biggest miner, but there's also other big fish in this um, in this environment too. Um, you know, I think investors who are, who who know companies that like Kenmare, which produce you know titanium, um, you know, in a, in a in a long distant form from the metal. You know, they're probably comfortable with this type of investment where you're you're buying into a um, you know a niche but not niche product um, that has pretty broad demand um, drivers, but it won't be massively exciting. Other than the fact it's a UK listing, but yeah, that that's a uh, that's fair enough. Uh, yeah, no, I should switch on the excitement again because you know we're supposed to be thankful that 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 people are looking in our direction at the moment. It's true. We shouldn't I, perhaps be so pathetically groveling as I am for any uh, <laughs> any UK listing. Uh, uh, it is definitely a, a niche uh, investment, even notwithstanding the fact it could be in the FTSE 100. But when it comes down the line in a few weeks or months, yeah, we can take all those uh, opinions on board and see how it see how it does trade, as you say. Final segment today, very briefly, we should probably talk a little bit about crypto. Uh, just because there's been a lot of news flow this week, and I say I say briefly, we will give it a, a fairly brief, uh, a fairly swift uh, rundown. But there's been in the US, there's been uh, you know regulatory action, more of a regulatory crackdown on uh, Coinbase for one, uh, but not limited to Coinbase. And in the UK as well, the the FCA has come out with uh, some of its own pronouncements today. Uh, Alex, can you maybe say a little bit more about the, the FCA for for starters? Yeah, um, I you know love for Hermione to jump in and and give us the the smart person's take on this as well. But um, you know the FCA is basically saying um, it really wants people to know that they're kind of out in the wilderness um, buying um, coins. I mean, it's such a it's a really well established infrastructure around buying crypto now that. Um, you know, from compared to five, ten years ago, even 
you kind of really had to know your stuff to, to actually buy it. But now, you know, with the almost mainstreamification of, of crypto, it's quite easy to just, you know, jump on an app and buy some, um, you know, I think they, FCA said that, that one in 10, um, people in the UK had, had done that. Um, and now they're just really wanting to make clear that, you know, it's not a protected investment. You don't, you know, there's not a lot behind what you're buying. Just, just be mindful that it is a gamble. And, and to that end, um, they're, um, tightening the marketing rules, um, referring people will be harder, if not impossible, um, under these rules. I'm sure, you know, you can still text your mate and say, buy this, um, obviously, but you know, within the, within the platforms, um, that'll be tighter. Uh, and there's a cool, you won't get period. a, you won't get a bonus for referring friends. Yeah. I think is what they're, they're clamping down on. And, and yeah, they're cooling off periods as well. Yeah. Something else. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think the, the comparison with the, the U S is that, um, the SEC this week, um, has, um, put out these hundreds of pages of statements um, for uh, Binance and Coinbase saying that they are running exchanges illegally. Um, you know, these are these are SEC rules from the 1930s that continue to govern how um, people buy and share um, or buy and trade investments. Um, and, you know, if you're running an exchange, you, you kind of need to know what they say. Coinbase says that it's been trying to to, to sort this out with the SEC and said that the SEC ticked off its um, listing in the US in 2021. So, you know, why are you crying crying about it now effectively? Um, so there's there's a bit of pushback. They're also selling a, an NFT uh, to support the crypto industry if you're interested. That's not investment advice, I'm just saying. it's uh, Coinbase rather than the SEC, I presume this is. Uh, that's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, and it seems like quite a shift. Um, obviously, people lost a lot of money um, off the... Um, the collapse last year of um of Sam Bankman Fried's um little endeavor, um and you know you assume that 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 example has has shown people the risks, but yeah I guess this is the next the next phase. Yeah, in the US, this is the question of whether crypto you know whether these are all securities effectively and therefore come under these these old but still applicable rules. Uh, it, it certainly seems that I mean there are differing views I think in. In Congress in the US, as you might expect, and and even among certain regulators, but definitely the SEC and the at the top of the SEC and the commissioner are very much anti anti crypto and and you know responding accordingly at the moment. Khamani, as Alex said, we should uh, defer to you. Your thoughts on crypto regulation? Um, I, this is certainly not a smart person take, but um, we have had an, an interesting kind of standoff in the UK about how we should regulate crypto. So we've got the Treasury Committee have called on the government to uh, regulate crypto as gambling. And the Treasury's pushed back and said, no, no, financial services is the best way to regulate this. I think that some of the problem is coming from, for an individual, it does look a lot like gambling. So we've got the majority of people are losing money on crypto, is what is what the Bank of International Settlements says. And then the FCA has got a very um, kind of, they're, they're warning people that they might lose everything if they invest in crypto. So for an individual, the parallel to gambling is quite clear. But then when you start to look at it at an economy-wide level, you've got nearly as many people investing in crypto as you have in a stocks and shares ISA. And it starts to look a bit more like a financial stability risk, which I think is why the Treasury is saying that actually it is financial services that are best placed to regulate this rather than the gambling industry, um, which might end up actually giving crypto an easier ride. That does bring us to the end of the show, unfortunately. But thank you to all our contributors this week, Hermione and Mark. And thank you to you for listening. We will see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.